pray. God, we, uh, we realize today, at least most of us do, that uh, there's a couple ways we get touched in this world. We get touched by things that are truthful, and then we get touched by things that are experiential. And as we've heard Chad's story there, it, it's, it's hard to argue with that, God. It's the experience of one man who was down a, a pretty nasty road and now is down a road of joy and peace and purpose that has changed his life. And Lord, as he testifies, it all goes back to you. So as we unpack a bit, Lord, of this idea of the resurrection in a unique way this morning, in a way that I'll bet we haven't done before, I pray, God, that as Jesus prayed, that you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that can be experienced that you have for us. And I pray that humbly in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who uh, is doing pretty well coming out of the recession. He lost his job about a year ago, and all of us thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be very hard. You're going to probably lose your house and your cars and, and all the other stuff. And, and I asked him how he'd done fairly well with being out of work for over a year and the job loss and all of that. He said, well, it's simple. He said, uh, back, you know, about 10 years ago, we prepared for something like this. We, we envisioned a negative scenario that could happen in our economy, and my wife and I started putting aside money, and so we were prepared for this eventuality in our lives. It reminded me of, of my small town of Chagrin Falls, where I come from just outside of Cleveland, that has a disaster preparedness plan that a lot of communities have now for a, a terrorist attack or a natural disaster. They've prepared for, a, again, a negative, fictitious scenario that they can imagine in their minds that they're prepared for, hopefully, for that. And that reminded me of something my daughter did last summer. She worked up at Prescott, and as a nervous dad, I was worried about her driving through the desert every week to go up to work there. I could picture her running out of gas, the cell phone not working, thirsty, and all that stuff. So I put a nice emergency kit in her trunk and said, you know, if something ever happens, open up that trunk. It's got everything you need, even stuff you don't need, like flares, but part of the kit. And so I said, you know, and you're, you're all set. And, uh, and, and, and what do all those stories have in common? A, a guy who prepares for a financial setback, a, a community that prepares for a natural disaster, a daughter that prepares for possibly being stuck in the desert. And we could go on and on. They're simply stories of negative, fictitious scenarios that you and I can conjure up in our mind that, though not fun to conjure up, help prepare us for what a reality might be. And we're good at doing that as human beings. We do it all the time. We're wired to think about what our lives would be like if they were different than what we might do as a result. And if you can latch on to that at all this morning, folks, if you've ever found yourself doing something like that, then you're totally ready to dive into a particular look at the Easter story that the Bible gives us, which is not your usual upbeat, Jesus rose from the dead and aren't you glad scenario that you find in the Gospels, but one in which Paul the Apostle, writing years after the event, is ruminating on what life would be like for us if Jesus had not risen from the dead. He's rethinking the resurrection, if you will, in a huge sort of what-if way to bring home to us its significance of what it would be like if it truly did not happen. And so with this said, I want to read it for you. If you're confused at this point, you won't be after I read this for you. Let me read for you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, and you'll catch on to his argument here. Look up here on the screen. Paul the Apostle speaking. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now here it is. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. I I like what Paul is doing here. He's rethinking the resurrection. He's thinking of a negative, fictitious scenario, very similar to the ones that we started off with here, of what life might be like if a worst-case scenario happened. What would it be like if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? What would it say about our spirituality and our relational lives? This side of heaven is Easter never happened. Four things here that Paul says that you don't want to miss. Four things that he concludes would be the result if Jesus was not resurrected from the grave. And the first implication for Christianity is that the New Testament then would have been written by liars. Could I say it more clearly? The New Testament writers would be simply liars. And this is what Paul is saying. Check it out. Look at what he says there in verse 15. You'll see what I mean. He says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And so dial into this. Paul is saying that he himself, as well as many other leaders of the very first Christian church 2,000 years ago, guys like Peter and John and the 12 disciples, and as you're going to see in a second, many others, either witnessed the death of Jesus and then witnessed his resurrection or they knew that he was put to death because all of Jerusalem knew that and then witnessed him walking around after his resurrection. Either way, they wrote and testified to the fact that this resurrection really occurred. And isn't it fascinating that we have numerous historical documents from that time, i.e. the four Gospels, that tell us that these people truly witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Uh, Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, earlier on in the chapter. He would say, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now here it is. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Interesting. Paul the Apostle is basically saying there, hundreds of people saw him risen from the dead. And these same people are living today. You can ask them about it, and we're writing to you about it right now. And then look at what John would say in his letter. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, we have seen it and testified to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim to you. 
So John says the same thing. It's kind of like a scratch CD. It just goes over and over again. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've testified to it. He really rose from the dead. And then you've got to love Peter. I mean, Peter was most, the most brash and candid follower of, of followers of Jesus, follower of Jesus's. And, and listen to how Peter puts it in his epistle. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Could he be more clear? Uh, don't, don't miss this, folks. What Paul is saying here is that from multiple credible sources written and recorded in history, even living at the time that Paul was making his argument here, there were eyewitnesses to this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he's saying the only option available to you is either believe them or don't believe them, but let's just call a spade a spade. If you choose not to believe it, you're calling them liars. It's the first implication of life without a resurrection. They're false witnesses. They're misrepresenting God. Or as Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase of this passage, it's all smoke and mirrors. You know, theologians have been wrestling with this and historians for 2,000 years now. And they've been wrestling with the stark reality of that if we say we don't believe that there's a resurrection, I guess we're calling them liars. But over the years, they've tried to soften that blow a little bit. So historically, what some have said is, well, we're really not calling them liars. We're just saying that, that maybe they're just a little bit misguided. Uh, and maybe they just have a little bit too much zeal. And they so wanted Jesus to be risen from the dead that they kind of convinced themselves that this was true. But isn't that kind of insulting? I mean, if something like a resurrection happened to you, if something of that monumental historical nature happened to you and you bore witness to it and somebody looked at you and said, well, golly, and pat you on the head, isn't that kind of nice that you wanted to believe that? Isn't that kind of nice that you really think that? I guess just a little bit misguided. You say, no, this is not wish fulfillment. This is not me being misguided. It's either true or false. Either call me a liar or tell me it's true. And then others have tried to comment over the years, especially in our day and age, they've tried to say, well, maybe Paul didn't mean this literally. Maybe John didn't mean this literally. Maybe they were using symbolic language to say that Jesus symbolically or figuratively rose from the dead. And that would mean then that we also need to rise from the dead in our own lives and conquer our own sin. And that's really the meaning of Christianity. But again, the only problem with this is that when you read the documents, I'm telling you, Paul is not talking figuratively here. He makes it very clear that if Jesus did not physically and bodily rise from the dead, then they are liars because they saw him and witnessed to others that this is so. And so here are the three options you really have when it comes to the New Testament documents, especially the epistles. And that is that you've got to call these guys either credible, criminal, or crazy. Those are the three options before you. They're either credible documents, which I'm arguing for today, because the resurrection makes sense for our spiritual lives and Jesus can change everything, or these guys are criminal because they're false witnesses here in a court of law, say, or they're just downright crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. Very similar to how C.S. Lewis once argued that Jesus was either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic, I would submit to you that the New Testament writers are either credible, criminal, or crazy. It's the first implication of what life would be like if Jesus did not rise on Easter Sunday. 
Now, believe it or not, we're just leaving the starting blocks here. So notice with me a second implication of what your spiritual life would be like if Jesus was not resurrected from the grave. And that is that our Christian faith would become a joke. Our Christian faith would be a joke. And some of you are saying, well, that's not very funny. I mean, it's not a laughing matter. Why would you say it's a joke? And the reason is, is because this is exactly the idea that Paul wants us to have in the second implication of life without a resurrection. You see, a joke, by its very nature of it, is something shallow and rather meaningless, right? Give me a head nod that we all at that. Jokes are funny. They make you laugh. They're amusing. The word amusing comes from the word muse, which means to think about, put an A in front of it. It's the opposite of having to think about something. Jokes, by the very nature, are usually amusing, shallow, rather meaningless things. And what Paul is saying here is that that's exactly what yours and mine faith in Jesus would be if there is no resurrection. It'd be a shallow, meaningless joke. Look how he says it in verses 14 and then 17 and 18. This is kind of cool. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Hang on to that word, vain. And your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Two words you want to latch on to there that will help you understand what Paul is saying. Those are the words vain and futile, both describing our faith if there is no resurrection. That word vain literally means to be empty, to have no substance, to be hollow. As one Bible expert says, and I quote, it means devoid of reality. And that word futile there is an interesting word. It's a goal-oriented word that literally means that when it is all said and done, there's no fruit. So for those of you who are bottom-line business guys, if somebody were to say to you, or if those of you women who are bottom-line business women, if somebody was to say to you, you know, your your business attempts are futile, it means that they're not going to result in any fruit. They're not going to have happen what you think they would happen. And so put these two together. I like how one Bible expert does it. He says that if Christ has not risen from the dead, then your faith is both wanting in reality and wanting in results. It's wanting in reality. There's no substance to it. And it's wanting in results. And some of you are thinking right now, well, gosh, that seems to be overstating the case just a little bit, don't you think? I mean, why take this so seriously? Listen to what Paul says again in verses 17 and 18. He's saying, if there is no resurrection, then there is no forgiveness of sins. Because the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus truly had authority over death and, and sin. And if there is no resurrection and forgiveness of sins, then certainly there's no eternal life because the Bible says that we're dead in our sins, separated from God. Then those who have died before us are just six feet under. They've perished. I mean, please see, folks, it's a chain of dominoes here. If there is no resurrection, then every promise that is included in the Old and New Testament is bankrupt. It's useless, it's empty and void, and you might as well discard your faith on the side of the road and move on. That's what Paul is saying life would be like without a resurrection of Jesus. You know, as many of you know, I I like to hike and jog. I'm doing it less and less as I get older, which is bad, but it's always been my exercise of choice to hike and or jog. 
And about five years ago, when I was living back in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, I was jogging one day about a mile and a half outside of town on a desert, more deserted rural road, and I noticed there on the side of the road a really nice leather-bound portfolio, very similar to this one, I'll show you the real one in a minute, that was si- uh, laying on the side of the road. And obviously, because that was kind of out of place, it, it caught my attention, and I walked over and I picked it up, and sure enough, it was a beautiful leather-bound portfolio, and when I opened it up, it, it, it had inside it a really nice silver pen, and then when I looked inside of it, uh, this doesn't show up, but you'll see in a minute, it had a, a nice place for a calculator, and it had a solar calculator built in, and it had a bunch of credit card spots, and then it had that beautiful thicker parchment paper, you know, that you have to buy at a stationery store, not, not like a cheap legal pad, but beautiful paper in it. And it was obviously an estimator's uh, type of portfolio or some businessman's portfolio. And, and, I, and I remember picking this up, looking around, like there's nobody on this road at all. And, and I thought what I learned in first grade, I thought, well, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. <laughs> I thought, my ship has come in. I like nice things. This is my day. And I thought I might as well tuck it under my arm and run back into town. But then my immediate next thought, and aren't you glad for the Holy Spirit, was of the Eighth Commandment. Anybody know what the Eighth Commandment is? Thou shalt not steal. And I know some Christians would argue and say, but it's not stealing, you found it. Not so quick. What that commandment means, and I am seminary trained, doggone it, is that it means is that you don't take something that's not yours. And so just because I found it doesn't mean that it's mine. It still belongs to somebody else. And so again, I looked around and I thought, well, I don't want to lug this thing back to town. It's hard enough to lug me back to town. And so I I found this little orange pylon near there because there was some erosion along Miles Road there. And I just set it on the pylon and I thought, well, hopefully the person who lost it will retrace his or her steps and come and find this. And I left it and I went on my way. About a week later, I was jogging the same route, and I'd completely forgotten about this portfolio, and as I was jogging the same route, I saw the pylon about 100 feet in front of me. And as I looked closely, I thought, I wonder if that portfolio is still there. Because, hey, a week later, definitely finders, keepers, losers, weepers. (laughs) So I was looking for this, I'm kidding, so I was looking for this portfolio, and sure enough, I didn't see it. So I ran past the orange pylon, and just a little bit past the pylon, off to the side, I noticed the portfolio. But it looked a lot different this time. This is the actual portfolio. It it had rained that week. Rain are these moisture drops that come out of the sky back in the Midwest and they make the earth really wet. You guys don't know what that is here, but trust me, it happens a lot in the Midwest. It had rained that week, and this thing had gotten all dirty and muddy. But even worse, somebody who didn't believe the Eighth Commandment had found this, and they robbed everything inside it. Can you see that there? They robbed everything inside it. That beautiful solar calculator was gone. That nice silver pen, gone. The beautiful parchment paper, gone. And even worse, they had thrown it so hard, probably got run over by cars, got a scratch here, a scratch there, and another scratch there. It's got a little rip here. And I stood there holding this thing, and honestly I thought what was a nice, beautiful, leather-bound portfolio is now completely useless, except for a really good sermon illustration. And are you picking up on it? See, here's what the Bible says about yours and mine faith. Now, don't miss this. The Bible says that the faith that you and I have in Christ is just like a beautiful leather-bound portfolio in which you and I can use this to dial up God anytime we can pray to Him. 
We can use it to make calculations based upon His Word to give direction to our lives. We can use it to fellowship and interact with other people and have iron sharpen iron in this world. There are so many things, you guys know the Bible, that the Bible says that our faith gives us in Christ that makes it just like a beautiful leather-bound portfolio. And yet take away the resurrection, and here's Paul's point, and your faith becomes an empty, beat-up, cast-to-the-side-of-the-road portfolio that no longer has the ability to dial up anybody, no longer has the ability to to make any uh, calculations. It's empty and void of anything useful. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here as he ponders what faith would be like without the resurrection. If Jesus was not resurrected, then your prayer's a joke. You really don't have, I'm sorry, your faith is a joke. You really have no prayer life. You have no faith to speak of. It's empty. It's not real. And this leads very naturally then to the third implication that Paul gives us if Jesus is not resurrected from the grave. And forgive my crassness, but that is that all Christians might as well then shut up. It's true. I don't mean to say it so candidly, but I'll show you in a minute here. The text does this. It demands candor. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then all Christians might as well stop being so verbal and vocal. They might as well pipe down about their faith. They might as well, well, just shut up about their faith. Look at verse 14 again. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, all of our words, is in vain. I taught you a second ago what that word vain means. It means empty, hollow, without substance. But what you might not know is that Paul uses this exact same word in Ephesians 5 when he says, do not be deceived by the empty and vain words of immoral people around you. And then challenging us not to participate in this, he says, for it's even disgraceful to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Very strong language Paul uses there. In other words, he's saying shut up about it. Don't even speak about what they do. And with the same strength, he uses the same word in our passage in saying that life without a resurrection, in which it would mean that you have nothing to say to anybody about your Christian faith. And the question I want you and I to wrestle with, just for a brief moment here, we're getting on the short strokes here, is why is that so? I mean, think about it. There's lots of religions, major world religions, that have no resurrection and they still talk. I mean, Buddhism doesn't have a resurrection. Uh, Confucianism doesn't have a resurrection. Taoism doesn't have a resurrection. And so there's lots of religions in the world that don't have a resurrection, and they can still speak. Why is it that Christians would be have to totally shut up if there was no resurrection? Listen, here's why. Because our claim is that Jesus came in the flesh as God in the flesh, and without a resurrection, that claim is unproven. Our claim is that Jesus came to give us victory over sin and forgiveness of sin. And without a resurrection, there is no power over sin. Without a resurrection, there is no hope of eternal life, yet we talk about eternal life a lot as Christians. In short, don't miss this, without a resurrection, Jesus becomes simply another good teacher, another wise and humanitarian person like Gandhi or Confucius. And the reality is is that if we relegate Jesus to this kind of status, then the heat is turned way down on all the things that you and I talk about as followers of Jesus. 
If Jesus is not resurrected from the grave, all Christians might as well stop talking about what it means to know God and have eternal life and have victory over our sin and our struggles. We really wouldn't have anything to say anymore. Because please see, everything flows out of the resurrection. The famous apologist and writer C.S. Lewis nailed it 50, 60 years ago when he said that if you can prove that the resurrection didn't happen, then everything else crumbles with that. Richard Dawkins, who's written books against Christianity, gets that. His greatest claim is against the resurrection. Why? Because they know there's like a house of cards. You take that one little card down, everything else falls. And this finally leads into the fourth implication of a no-resurrection scenario. And this is the, the apex of it all. And that is that if Jesus is not resurrected from the grave, then we're living the grandest illusion of all time. You're saying, what's that about? Well, just think about it. If there is no resurrection, then basically all Christians are following is a dead man. For the last 2,000 years, we have staked our spiritual lives on a man who is decomposing in the grave. This is exactly Paul's point in verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're most to be pitied. In other words, he's basically saying people should look at us and like somehow when your, heart tu- your hearts are tugged toward a street person and you have pity on them, or when your heart is, is, is tugged toward somebody who's struggling with a, a, a deep form of mental illness and you have pity on them, you'd look at a Christian. And if there's no resurrection, you'd say that poor, deluded person. I mean, I feel sorry for them. Like they really think that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, how crazy can you get? How deluded can you get? than that. That's what Paul is saying life would be like without a resurrection. We'd be living the grandest delusion of all time. Folks, look up here on the screen. It's life without the resurrection. Imagine the implications. Rethink this today. The New Testament would become a mythical book written by liars. The faith that you and I have would be at the level of a joke, shallow and emptiness, empty, meaningless in the end. We might as then, well then shut up. Stop talking about the hope that we have in Christ because it's really not all that much of a hope if he didn't rise. And others would eventually feel pity for us realizing the sad, deluded state of affairs that we are in. Now, I thought about this week when I was working on my message, I thought, what would happen if I said amen at this point? Wouldn't that be a real bummer of a sermon? Like, if we were to end it right now, Craig, wouldn't that be awful? You'd be like going, well, Jamie, thank you for that really depressing sermon on Easter Sunday. But it's cool because, you see, Paul the Apostle hasn't ended his argument yet. He has one more thing to say. I don't know if you caught it in verse 20, and this is the note I want us to end on. Look up here on the screen. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Don't miss what he's doing. He's saying, fictitious scenario over. We looked at it for just a little bit. We looked at the implications. We've now planned for a terrible eventuality. But guess what? It's not going to happen. Someday you might get stuck in the desert. Someday we might need a disaster plan for our community. Someday the economy might go south again. And yet the reality is what Paul is saying. But in fact, historically, rooted in history, he has been raised from the dead. And it's the first fruits of all those who have now followed him. Amen. You can clap at that. You clapped at Scott McIntyre. You might as well clap for Jesus. So that's good. 
Even Scott would say, let's clap for Jesus. But it's true. I mean, he's ending on a positive note here. Don't miss that. He's saying we went through a fictitious, fictitious scenario to make a point how, how meaningless our lives would be without the resurrection. But guess what? He did rise from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, now don't miss this, the implications are profound. Reverse everything we've been talking about up to this point. Because he rose from the dead, the Bible is true. All that it says about Jesus and the implications. Because he rose from the dead, you've got a portfolio of faith now that can take you far all the way into eternity. Because he rose from the dead, uh, you don't have to stop talking about your faith. And because he rose from the dead, you're living truth. You're not living a delusion. In short, because he rose from the dead, forgiveness from God is offered to you. Love from God is offered to you. Hope from God is offered to you. Purpose this side of heaven is offered to you. In other words, every promise given in the New Testament, as Paul would say, is now yes in Christ Jesus because he rose from the dead. One of the things that I love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we have tons of people that call this church home. And though we're a varied lot, I mean, there's lots of differences among us on a political level, economic level, on a relational level, societal level, age level. Got lots of differences here. One thing that we all share is in our own muddled way, Jesus Christ has found us. We have found him and our lives will never be the same. And for those of you who are visiting with us today, may I be candid for a minute. For those of you that I might not see until Christmas of this year, what I would like to say to you, because I get it, I was a C&E Christian for my first 18 years of my life. C&E means Christmas and Easter only. And that was the state of my church going, and I get that for the first 18 years of my life. But it was at some point around 18... That, that Jesus Christ found me. And it was at some point where I, I, I started giving, just stopped giving lip service to the resurrection. Because if you asked me when I was 16 if I believed in the resurrection, I'd say, well, yeah. But it didn't really mean much to me. I, I never really rethought it like our friend Chad had. I never rethought it like Paul had asked us to. But when I was 18 years old, God grabbed my heart. I rethought the implications of the resurrection. And as I said before, it was like going from black and white to technicolor. I realize that my sins are really forgiven, that I can really know God, that my life can count before Him, and that I needed Him at the center, Lord and Savior of my life. And it all went back to Jesus and His resurrection. And so again, if if you're visiting with us today, we invite you back. We invite you to to be a seeker, uh, maybe become a believer among us here, and to join this humble community of faith as we parse out week in and week out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We invite you to take that step and do that with us. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, your word does nothing but give us hope. Even, Lord, when it says negative things to us and even engages in negative scenarios like today, it does so for the purpose of lifting our sights beyond the here and now to get us to think a bit more than an inch deep and to really ask ourselves if our lives are going to count as we follow you, trust you, and do life your, your way. Father, I pray for those of us who came in here today, pretty much already convinced believers who are walking close with you, I pray, God, that uh, today would be a nothing but an encouraging day. 
that as we've taken an honest look at what our life would be like without the resurrection, we've seen that it'd be nothing, and so it's everything since you have been raised. And I pray, God, that we'd latch on to that. I pray, Father, for those who have come in here today, maybe in a seeking mode, just wanting to know more about what rich faith in Jesus Christ looks like. I pray, God, they might have caught a glimpse of it today and to realize that realities like forgiveness, purpose, hope, peace, joy, this side of heaven can be theirs as they look to and embrace the resurrected Jesus. Pray they might begin that journey today. God, thank you for your grace that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for the free country we live in where we can worship you and celebrate Easter for what it is. So we thank you for our time together. We go now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and the whole church says together, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.